Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. Today, we're going to be talking about federated learning, or rather, Katie and Ben from two years ago are going to be talking about federated learning because uh, I don't remember what it is. Right. So this is a blast from the past episode. We are still taking a little bit of a summer vacation break here. And I think we both had the same reaction when we were talking about doing this particular episode as a rerun, which was, that was really interesting. And we don't remember exactly what it was or how it worked which is right. a peril once you're at 200 plus episodes as we are now. So chances are, if you have been a longtime listener, then maybe you've forgotten this as well and would appreciate a re-up. And if you're a more recent uh, person who's, who's joined us, then you probably haven't heard it at all. So either way, we thought this would be a good one to, uh, to dust off. Awesome. So we'll all take a seat and you can learn about federated learning with us from us. Enjoy. Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. Today, we're going to have an unfettered podcast on philosophies of federated learning. Sounds great to me. You are listening to Linear Digressions. This whole pun thing is just, it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's true. Okay, let's talk about machine learning. Uh, federated learning. So federated learning is kind of a new thing. Uh, this was on, showed up on the Google Research blog in the last uh, few weeks. And the idea here, let me paint a little bit of a scenario, a word picture for you, and then we'll get into you know, what federated learning is here. But the, the f thing we should start with is the motivation. So here's the motivation. Um, imagine that I am carrying around a phone. So I have a smartphone and there's all these apps on the smartphone and some of those apps might have machine learning in them. So a good example might be something like if you're Google, there's machine learning in search, which might give you something like autocomplete or machine learning in the photos app, which is predicting which photos you're most likely to click on if you're like searching through your library or something like that. And so those are machine learning models. Um, and when I'm using my phone, I'm interacting with those models. They're giving me predictions. I'm confirming those predictions or maybe giving slight corrections if I decide not to take those suggestions. And if you're Google, that's actually feedback that's really valuable to you because it's somebody interacting with your model and saying, giving it basically more training data, like was it getting things right or was it getting things wrong? I have a couple quick thoughts. Uh, first of all, just taking a step back, it's kind of a it was kind of a paradigm shift for me to think of machine learning as a thing that didn't just happen in supercomputers, you know, in research centers, or even like on your laptop. Your phone is just a computer, just a really small computer. Yeah. So it, of course, it makes sense that you could have machine learning on a phone. Um, but definitely, there was there was a paradigm shift for me when I made that realization because I had always been thinking of uh, machine learning and all of the things that we talk about on the podcast as things that would happen on um, on computers. Sure, but of course they don't have to be. Um, and you can see how like a phone is a sensible place for this to be happening. And if you're Google, it would be really great if you can capture all of that feedback, all of that training data. Um, but there are a lot of things that make that really challenging. And so federated learning is basically a way of thinking through this problem. How can we do machine learning on board a mobile phone in a way that is respectful, so to speak, of the constraints that are involved in doing machine learning in a setting like this. When I was at Udacity, actually, I developed an app which was meant to 
teach people the very begin just the very beginning of the basics of uh, XML, specifically Android layout using XML. And you do it in this app that I built uh, when you were learning Android layout. And that was lesson one of this course. And one of the things that I found really interesting is like when a user is first interacting with a concept, there's a lot of data there, you know? There's a lot of like potential insights if you could somehow collect that data and then you find a way to pull those insights out of that data. Um, and it's a, it's a really hard problem. So when I was building this app, the approach I took was, okay, we don't know how we're gonna process this data now, but we do know that we could just collect it, right? Right. So whenever the user moves their mouse or types a keystroke as they're trying to type XML, send that back to the server. But at the same time, that's not very respectful to the to the user. And this would be uh, pretty much all users would be on a laptop or a desktop computer. So they, they probably have a good source of Internet. But even still, using up that much of the connection just to collect data, something that's not directly helping the user with their experience in the moment isn't necessarily very respectful. And then it's even more so disrespectful when you have someone on a phone with a limited uh, with limited bandwidth, and potentially they might even be paying for that bandwidth per kilobyte or megabyte. Yep, totally. I mean, you covered a lot of the constraints that are going on in this. So let me go through my list too. And there are just a couple others that uh, that I'll add to the thing that you to the list that you've started here. So the first is that you have a data set and it's decentralized. So you need to have a machine learning algorithm this somehow, the the place where we're going with this is, um, yeah, you don't want to be sending the data back to Google in order for data, for Google to be updating the models on the raw data. So the data, which you're using to train the models here is decentralized, it's sitting in all kinds of different computers all over the place. So how are you going to deal with that? The second thing is that it's imbalanced. So based on who's using the app and how they're using it, you're going to get much more data from one type of user uh, than maybe from another type of user. And that can be kind of challenging. We've, I think, done a few episodes on imbalanced data and how that can be challenging to use in machine learning algorithms. They tend to overfit sometimes to the more common use cases, which is maybe not always what you want. So you want something that will be fairly robust against any degradation in performance because of the imbalancedness of the data. It's throughput limited in the way that you said. So it's expensive to send data back and forth to these devices. And so any information that you put onto the device or you take off should be compressed and made as small as possible. There's the privacy concerns that you mentioned. You need to be privacy sensitive and not be able to identify individual users. Another thing that's worth thinking about here, since we're talking about machine learning, is that this makes the most sense in a context in which the data is much larger than the size of the model. So if you compare something like a trained neural network that's doing image recognition to the set of images that we use to train that model, the models can be pretty big, but usually the set of training data is much, much larger. And that's kind of the case that we're in here. Next is that the labels for the training data can be naturally inferred by the user's interaction with the app in this case. So you're giving feedback to the app about whether it's making guesses that are right or wrong, or you're giving feedback to the algorithm. And so the algorithm can hypothetically take advantage of sort of that labeled data right away. You don't need manual intervention in order for labels to be applied to the cases that it's trying to learn from. And last is that the data doesn't necessarily have to be what we call IID, and that stands for independently and identically distributed. And that's an assumption that's very often made in statistical modeling. And it's basically the assumption that 
that most of the data that you're looking at is pretty comparable in a way. This is a little bit getting at the idea of imbalancedness, but in particular, the idea that different types of users might be interacting with the app in different ways. And so the actions of one user are not always going to be totally like interchangeable with the actions of another user. And you want to have an algorithm that's going to be fairly robust against that also. So to give perspective on what we aren't doing and what we are doing, what we aren't doing is we're not trying to have all of these different mobile phones send up all of the raw data. Uh, They would instead send up something smaller than that. Uh, What that something smaller is, we haven't really gotten to. Uh, What we are doing is finding some way of taking all of that raw data and on the device doing some kind of either compression or learning with it. Yeah, that's right. So, and that's what federated learning is, is it's a set of those kinds of steps. Uh, How do you, what's the updates that you want to make on board the phone? And then how do you upload them and sort of combine them? So here's what we're talking about concretely. So you have a machine learning model. In these cases, they are looking at TensorFlow models. And so you have a version of TensorFlow. TensorFlow is sort of a neural network uh, machine learning library, if you like. So you have a version of TensorFlow that's running on the Google data centers. And then you also have probably a kind of stripped down version that's running on your phone. So it's not quite so big. So you have a model that is created and trained in the data centers. Then it's compressed and it's pushed out to all the phones, which then can kind of unpack it. And now they're running their little TensorFlow model onboard like processor on your phone. So now the user has this the model on their phone, and let's say for the for the sake of concreteness, it's doing like a, a autocomplete in like a keyboard interaction setting. So the user starts using the keyboard; it's suggesting some autocompletes. Some of them the user accepts, in which case it's getting some feedback like that was a good suggestion that you just mm-hmm. made. Some cases the user might ignore it or dismiss it, and that's also giving you some feedback, like that was probably not what the user was looking for. Or maybe they could even compare the suggestion that it made to the the thing that the user ended up eventually typing in. So that's suggesting that the model still has some learning to do. Okay, so now I have an updated version of the model that's sitting on my phone that's got some tweaks to it based on the interaction that I've done with the model. Got it. So the the phone is actually doing learning. It's actually taking this model and it's tweaking the model based on the input that it got. Yep. So now I have a the modified version of the model on my phone. And now what my phone is going to do is it's going to wait until a few things happen. Uh, number one is that my phone is plugged in because this can be kind of expensive for the, for the model to update and also for the model to push back to Google. Um, mm. Also that my phone is connected to a free Wi-Fi connection. So that's basically Google or whoever the agent is being respectful of battery life and of data. Yep. But then let's say I plug in my phone to charge overnight. Uh, I'm, it's, I'm at home, so it's on my home Wi-Fi network. So now my model gets compressed and pushed back to Google. So there's like a small version of my model that gets pushed back to Google. Now Google receives this small version of the model. And if it were to just use that on its own to update sort of like the master model that Google has, that's not necessarily a great thing because it still is not doing a good job of respecting my privacy. Um, So the changes that were made that you see between the model that I've pushed and the model that Google has is showing the differences based on like my own personal usage of 
my own personal interactions with the machine learning. Mm, I see. So and, that's, yeah, that's definitely a problem. Yeah. And so the second part of this, so the first part of this is the idea that we're passing these models back and forth and that those are very compressed and we have a way of training them and in particular updating them in a way that's uh, that's quite efficient compared to the way that maybe you would normally make updates to a model. That's something we're skipping over a little bit, but that they really wring every little bit of information they can out of all of these training examples that they're collecting. And then the last part is collecting 100 to 1,000 maybe of these updates for mobile users who are all over the place and doing kind of this aggregation step, this averaging step of all of the changes that you see across all the different devices in that block. And so Google on their end waits until a whole bunch of these uploads are complete it combines all of those changes. And then the changes that are associated with any one individual then get kind of mixed in and blurred with the changes from everyone else. And this is one of the ways, there are a couple things that you get from this. Number one is it respects the privacy of users more than making individual updates. And secondly, it's one of the ways that you can protect against the model getting thrown off too much by differences from any one user. So any particular anomalous usage that's associated with one user gets smoothed out by everyone else, which helps the performance overall that you get from this. And also the fact that you're only making one big update to the model that's reflecting hundreds or thousands of small changes is probably more computationally efficient in the long run. Although that's a little bit of conjecture on my part. That makes a lot of sense. So that that last step is your privacy control, part of your reconciliation step where you take all of these models and get them into a into a state where you can reconcile them with your master model. And then there's probably one more step after that where you take this anonymized diff, diff we'll say, um, between the master model and the new one, and then reconciles it in and, and pulls it in and takes the changes. Yep. So each one of those steps has a lot of sub-steps, and the Google Research blog has a We'll put a link on lineardigressions.com, as always. And then that has links to several different subpapers that are talking about the aggregation protocols and maybe some of the stuff around how you compress models and things like that. Um, but yeah, putting it all together, then you have this sort of distributed, imbalanced, privacy-respecting machine learning that is spread out across many mobile devices, and that is what we call federated learning, and that's pretty cool. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.